Well, good evening to you. Welcome. If you're new to Citadel Square, my name is Steve, one of the pastors here. We're going to spend a few minutes uh, this evening on taking a look at a, a section of scripture here that uh, is probably one of the most well-known passages in all the Bible. It's, and it's got, you know, honestly, it's got everything you'd want in a Christmas story. It's got angels, it's got mangers. That's all you need, really. I don't, you know, I think that's probably it. Uh, it's in Luke chapter 2. If you've got a Bible, go ahead and grab it or uh, turn on your phone, device, iPad, whatever it is you use. If you need a Bible, there's one in the pew rack in front of you. And if not, there's going to be the words on the screen that will allow you to follow along with this great story. Uh, if you've been in our church for the past several weeks, we've been looking at Luke's gospel. And Luke is a consummate uh, researcher. He's an individual who takes very, very seriously the gospel message of Jesus Christ coming into the world, and he does so by backing it up with copious, copious amounts of data. He really is a, is a data guy. He's into specifics. He's into fulfilled prophecies. He's into the stories of the individuals that mark the Christmas story. And, and when you read your Bible, really at any point, when you open up the scriptures, what you have is a... Uh, a history of God's encounter and dealing with mankind. The Bible brings together two, kind of two tracks. One has to do with the higher story, the upper story, angels, demons, God, heaven, sin, righteousness, justice, all the, you know, the religious words, all of that that have to do with kind of the upper story, the higher story of, of truth, uh, and then it has the lower story, which is basically for us life down here. It's got facts and people and places and seasons and uh, winter and summer and fishing and all sorts of kind of lower story. Taxes, it's got that. Anybody, can, you, know, you do taxes? The Bible talks about taxes. Uh, it's got kind of the mundane. And when you get to the Christmas season, there's no better place in all of the scriptures to talk about what the Bible uses, a, a term. The term that the Bible uses is the term Incarnation. And in the story of Jesus, what the incarnation essentially means is that God became flesh. And in the Christmas story, what we have is the upper, the higher story of God touching the lower story. Touching life on this earth in the person of Jesus Christ who's come as a baby. So we're going to look at Luke chapter 2, verses 2, 1 through 20. And if you've got a Bible, like I said, you can follow along. But the incarnation is a really important idea. And I want to just give you three big points that will help you think through this passage and, and share with you, I think, what this passage means for us this evening. The incarnation essentially is going to deal with particularly insignificant realities. That's number one. Number two, the incarnation is going to give us some information about ourselves that we can't get from any other place. And then number three, what the incarnation does for us, as we'll look at the end of this passage, the incarnation is essentially an invitation. It's going to ask you to consider things about yourself that maybe you don't want to talk about a whole lot. It's going to ask you to consider what Jesus means for you, what Jesus' incarnation coming into the world means for you here tonight. So I'm going to pray, and then we're just going to jump in and look at Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 20 together, all right? But pray with me. Father, for these few minutes as we look into your word, we pray that we might see some things about you that uh, perhaps we haven't considered before. 
that we would stand back and look at the story of God becoming flesh, Jesus coming into the world, and consider what that means for us. Consider what that means for our understanding of who you are and the kind of God that you are, that you would be so willing to send your son into the world for us. So, Father, stoke our attention and our affection as we look into these things and bless us as we read. In Christ's name, amen. Well, first, let's look at the insignificance of the incarnation. Look at Luke chapter 2, verse 1 with me. In those days. Now, if you've been with us in our church, in those days is Luke's way of talking about all of what has been happening up to this point in the book of Luke. And up to this point in the book of Luke, you've had uh, the angel Gabriel show up and talk to Mary. You've had the angel Gabriel show up and talk to a man named Zechariah. And we've had two uh, miraculous conceptions happen. One is the birth and the... Um, the pregnancy of Zechariah and Elizabeth, an elderly couple who have John the Baptist. And the second is in Mary's womb in the coming of Jesus Christ. And it's within the days where these things are happening, where John has just been born and Jesus is about to be born, that Luke enters into this story. Luke begins his gospel talking about in the days of King Herod, who was king over Israel at that time. So what Luke do, does in the story of both John and Jesus is introduce us to the setting. It's as if Luke begins this story of Jesus' message with political realities that everybody would know. They could go back historically and verify this was who was king at the time. And that's how he starts the incarnation story for us. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria and all went to be registered, each to his own town. Now, you may have heard the term, uh, the, the name Caesar Augustus before. Caesar Augustus is actually not his name. It's a title given by the Romans to an individual that many have called one of the most influential leaders in all of human history. This was no insignificant person. In fact, he was the beginning of what became the most prosperous and peaceful time in all of the Roman Empire. He was called by the Roman Senate the first citizen. He was such a significant figure that under him, he quelled a lot of political upheaval and brought Rome into one of the most significant empires ever. Let me just read to you one, what one historian quoted about who he was. They called him the divine Augustus Caesar, son of a god, imperator of land and sea, the benefactor and savior of the whole world. So as Luke begins his account for us, he lets us know that there is some person on the scene who is perhaps one of the most significant figures in all of human history. And if we're introduced to Caesar in that way, what we have in the very next few verses that he gives us is perhaps one of the most insignificant couples of the day in Mary and Joseph. Look at verse 4. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. Now, if you've been in the church for any amount of time, you know that Jesus is supposed to be born in Bethlehem. How does God get Jesus, whose parents live in Nazareth, down to Bethlehem? He uses the government, which is pretty handy. That God has a way 
within his upper story and the lower story of accomplishing every single promise that he has made to his people. And that's what you have very simply in a Roman emperor declaring that we need to do a census. But the profound insignificance of Joseph and Mary is what I want you to see. They would be a part of a vast group of people who are moving all throughout the Roman Empire to go to their city of origin, their hometown as it were, and to be registered so that they could be taxed appropriately or conscripted into military service. So here's Joseph and Mary on the road, incredibly pregnant, headed back to their relative's house. You could not get a more insignificant and unnoticed couple during a time of such political strength in the Roman Empire. Verse 6, and while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them at the end. There is no angel singing. There is nothing significant about this moment. In fact, the birth of the second person of the Trinity, the incarnation of Christ himself into the world is captured in very simply two verses in the Bible. Now in preparation for this message, I did a little bit of research. Because when a baby is born, it's a pretty significant event. We've had six children, and every single one of those births was significant, especially the first, which had twins. So we've had some pretty significant moments in our family when a baby has come into the world. It changes your life. Amen? It changes your life. But I did a little bit of research, and I wanted to find out how many babies were born in 2020 in the city of Charleston. Do you know? In the Charleston County, you had about 4,900 babies born in 2020. Anybody have a baby in 2020? One. Now, let me, t- let me use this as an illustration. The vast number of you in the room were totally unaffected by the birth of any one of those 4,900 babies in 2020. In fact, in the United States, 3.61 million babies were born in 2020. And 99.9% of them had virtually zero impact on your life. And I want to show you this just to give you an idea is that in this time, the birth of the second person of the Trinity, the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power, his incarnation, came and was completely unnoticed. It was completely insignificant. It was completely irrelevant. Now for you and for myself, all of us have to consider that when does an event move in your life from irrelevance to relevance? You ever take a car to the shop and you're driving your car for weeks on end and you're totally fine driving your car until you take it to the shop for the oil change and you find out from the mechanic that there's something significantly wrong with this car. And you didn't know that. You have been driving in perpetual ignorance the entire time. But you had the mechanic, the wisdom of God, enter into your life and let you know some information that is incredibly significant for your life. What happens? Well, now, 
my experience in my car that has been completely irrelevant now becomes profoundly relevant because I have been given a piece of information that makes the problem in my car or the problem in my body or the problem in my family particularly relevant to me, which is what you have in the next part of this story. Look at verse 8. In the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. Now, if you had the insignificance of Mary and Joseph, you also have the insignificance of these shepherds. They're not named. We don't know their background. We don't know what city they're from. We don't know whether or not they're even good at their job. They're completely unremarkable individuals. They're not high in the social strata. In fact, their reputation at this time was that most shepherds were pretty dishonest. But we're introduced to shepherds that just so happen to be in the very same region where Jesus has been born. Verse 9, an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear, and the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Now for the upper story and the lower story to touch, to become relevant to our lives, we need information from outside. We need somebody to be able to give us information that allows us to interpret this particularly significant event in God's plan. And in Luke's story, we have the third uh, encounter with the angels. Gabriel shows up with Zechariah. Gabriel shows up and talks to Mary. And now we have a group of angels show up to some nameless, faceless shepherds giving them two things, both information and interpretation. Would you agree that we need both? We need both information, and we need to know, what does that information mean to me? Look at the first part of it. Here's the information. They bring you good news of great joy, and you'll notice this good news of great joy is for all the people, which means this message, this particular message from heaven itself, from in the mouths of angels, has impact and importance for every single person who hears it. Well, why is this message so important? Why is it that these angels would show up and give a message that matters to everyone? And the answer is what they give you in verse 11. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. They don't give you Jesus' name Though we know Jesus' name means salvation, they give you his roles, his offices, the things that Jesus will do. And the very first one that they give you is not administrator. It's not therapist. It's not economist. It's not philanthropist. It's not educator. The very first title that they give to Jesus incarnate is that he is Savior. Now, why does that matter? It matters because all of us believe fundamentally at the most foundational level of our lives that we are not perfect people. If nobody's ever told you that, let me be the first to tell you that you are not a perfect person. I am not a perfect person. And what the angels begin in giving the shepherds this information is telling us something about why this person was incarnated into the world. In fact, Jesus' name means salvation. That's the message that Gabriel gave to Mary because he will save his people from their sins. So we're introduced immediately that Jesus' incarnation means that he has come to solve a problem that we like to deny, that we like to disguise, that we don't like to talk about a whole lot. But the fact is, is that we are sinners and that Jesus has come for sinners. 
Number two, he's called Christ. Christ has to do, it's an Old Testament term that has to do with him being the anointed one, which means if he comes into the world as savior to save us from our sins, number two, he is anointed, which means this is who God says is going to be the one to save us from our sins. This is God's particular and peculiar way in which he will save people from their sins. It's in a man. It's in a person. And number three, he is called the Lord, which has to do with his authority, which means he actually has authority to declare that people's sins can be forgiven. All that information in one verse. Now he goes on. Look at verse 12. This will be a sign for you. Now, a sign creates meaning. Would you agree? We talk to me at this church, so I'm just going to feel free to just shout out and track along with me. A sign imparts meaning. Now, I was reading one commentator as he was commentating on Luke chapter 2, 1 through 20, and he gave this illustration I thought was just hilarious. So I'm going to share it with you, and you can share it with your friends when you teach this portion of the Bible later on. He gave this illustration. He said, imagine 10 people walk into the room. They all simultaneously take out a piece of gum from their pocket. They chew it. They chew it for five exact minutes. They spit the gum out into their hand. They put it in a tray. They stand up and they all leave the room. What just happened? Does anybody know? Was this a denture commercial? Was this to prove how long lasting the gum flavor is? Was it a memorial service to commemorate a good friend of theirs that always loved chewing gum? Do we have any idea? No, we need it interpreted for us, don't we? Because it could mean anything. And what the angels do for the shepherds is give them a sign. They're going to say, here's the information about this person who has been incarnated into humanity. He is Savior. He is Christ. He is Lord. But how do we know who he is? How do we find him? What information are you going to give me to be able to connect that he is who he says he is? He does matter to my life. And what's fascinating is that the angels give him a particular sign that has zero biblical evidence behind it. It's essentially Mary in an uncomfortable and inconvenient place putting her baby into a manger, which is typically what animals feed from. But the information that we're given makes that manger incredibly important. Would you agree? It becomes the sign to prove that what God has said is true, that this baby has come, that this baby is Christ, this baby is Savior, this baby is Lord. Verse 13, suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which, watch this, the Lord has made known to us. Did the shepherds ask for the sign? Say no. No, they didn't ask for the sign. Were they looking for the sign? Say no. No, they weren't looking for the sign either. But something had happened. Jesus had been born. And the angels had to give information and interpretation for this moment for the shepherds to understand. The shepherds recognized that God had to tell us something. This is one of the key things about Christianity. 
One of the key doctrinal truths is that nobody can make it to God on their own. God has to open the way. God has to show us our need. God has to demonstrate and give to us the solution to those of us who are sinners. To allow somebody to be the sin bearer so that we can come into relationship with God. There's not any Christian in this room who said, I am in good relationship with God because of something that I have done. Every Christian in this room has declared that God has done something for them. God has sent their son to die for their sins. And the shepherds say, God has made something known to us. Now watch the shepherds here, verse 16. They went with haste. Now I'll bet if you met an angel and they were singing and they told you some good news about a baby in a manger, you would move quickly. And they found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. Mary laid the baby in a manger. The angels had to give him information and interpretation about why the manger was so important. And lo and behold, the shepherds found the baby in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. The shepherds in Luke become your very first preachers. The very first people to begin to share the message that has been shared with them by angels. Their message now becomes, this is who this boy is. This is why this boy matters. So if we have the relative insignificance of the incarnation... If we have both the information given to us to interpret it correctly, now we have to consider what this incarnation means for us. And what I want to show you just in the last few verses here is why the message of the shepherds is so important. Why the message of the shepherds is actually an invitation to you and me to consider things about Jesus. Because as we read this story... We don't have angels. We tried to get angels. We tried to have Jared and then the angels singing. It would have been great. We couldn't get them. But what we have is the message of the shepherds, don't we? We still have the message that Luke has preserved for us that there is a baby who has been born who is Christ, who is Savior, and who is Lord. And what I want to show you in just the last few verses here is how the individuals respond to that message. Verse 18, all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. See, for a lot of us, we get to the Christmas season and we, there are lots of things that compete for your attention. The massive commercial engine, right? The Lego commercials, the Christmas lights, the food you've got to prepare, the, uh, the, maybe even the political and societal uh, struggles that we have at this particular time. And this message of Christmas might come in, this message of Jesus, of God becoming a, a baby and incarnating into the world and being the one who is going to save us from our sins. That message might feel far away and you might come into this place and we're going to light candles and that's going to be fun and we're going to do that and the nostalgia of the moment and in your family might wash over you. But there's a better response than just nostalgia and amazement when we get to the Christmas season and it shows up in Mary and the shepherd's response to these things. Verse 19, but Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. 
See, the Christian message of the incarnation is one that requires pondering. It requires considering what does this message mean if the angels of heaven sung that this is good news of great joy for all people? What does that mean for our relationship with God? Where is my relationship with God right now? And as, as even as I share these things from Luke chapter 2 right now, you might be thinking to yourself, what does this mean for me? Where is my relationship with God? Is, is my perspective on life primarily that of the beginning of this chapter, where I'm focused on societal powers and wealth and status and accomplishment and achievement and significance in my day and time? Or are the things that capture my attention things that angels would sing about? See, the truth of Christianity is a thinking man's truth. It's something that requires us to reflect and to think and to ponder what is true. If Jesus has come into that, the world, what does that mean about who he is and what does that mean about who I am? What does it mean that God himself has anointed this boy to be the savior of the world? And the second thing the Christian message shows us is in the response of the shepherds. Finally, in verse 20, the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, as it had been told to them. So there's really two good responses to the Christian message of the incarnation. One is reflection. What does this mean for me? What does it mean that Jesus has come into the world to save us from our sins? And number two, it's rejoicing. That's why we all sing the songs so loud at Christmas time. That's because we all know them. That, that, that's why joy erupts in our hearts again because we recognize that we have all, as sinners, fallen away from God. All of us are imperfect people and we've needed somebody to come into the world to give us information about who we are, to show us that we could not make it to God on our own. And we needed somebody who was strong enough to fix this problem in our hearts that characterizes all of us. So when we arrive together at church during Christmas time, we all sing loud because we confess that God has sent the Savior of the world, that God has sent my Savior and your Savior in the coming and the sending of his Son. And we sing, and the shepherds sing, and the angels sing. Let's pray. Father, as we ponder these things like Mary, as we consider the truth that Luke captures for us, that you came and sent your son as a baby in insignificant and as small, as unnoticed as he was. We needed somebody to share, us, share with us the information that we couldn't get on our own. We needed God to speak. So Father, for those in this room as we sing and consider the truth of Christmas that Christ has come into the world to save us from our sins, would even tonight there be somebody here who turns in repentance and faith to trust you for the salvation and the healing and the wholeness that comes, not because of our obedience, but because Christ has come. And Father, as we sing in these next few minutes, would our hearts be filled with joy and thankfulness that you loved us enough to send your son. In Christ's name we pray, amen.